Hello again, everybody. We are back for Bavink's The Christian Family, Chapter 5. And I think after this chapter is when they really start to get long. Um, or maybe it's Chapter 7. But this one we should still be able to do in one recording. But there's a lot of stuff to cover here. And a lot of stuff that's you can certainly do more than one recording trying to flesh it all out. I won't do that. Uh, though it is tempting just for my own study, but I feel like I think that going through the following chapters after this one, some of these things are going to be touched on again, maybe even developed, and we'll have more opportunities to talk about it and for me to kind of think about it and look at the Bible and Scripture, as we should always go to, to um, compare what I think is saying with Scripture and see if it is in agreement or not. And see if your own thinking, our own thinking, is in agreement with God's word or not. And then to conform to God's word. So chapter 5 here, the family in the New Testament. The holy family. And again, Bob Vink, and it seems like I was reading somewhere, and I, I just don't know enough about Bob Vink, but it seems like somewhere I was reading that maybe he held, maybe I'm making this up, I don't know, but had like an extra special warm spot for Mary, <laughs> Uh, the mother of Jesus, um, you know, he, he, he says right off the bat here that um, Mary occupies an entirely unique place in the history of the human race. Of course, I agree with that when you think of who she gave birth to. She surpasses even the prophets and the apostles in esteem and honor. Not so sure about that one. She alone was deigned to be mother of the Son of God. She is blessed and favored among women and is called blessed by all the families of the earth. I mean, she is certainly blessed among women. Um, you know, it, is her uh, place even greater than the prophets and the apostles um, upon the foundation, upon whom the foundation of the church is built just because, and don't misunderstand me, I'm not trying to denigrate Mary, but simply by virtue of the fact that she gave birth and was chosen to be the one who gave birth to Jesus. I'm, I'm not so convinced of that. Certainly, I don't think in our Protestant churches we typically think of the Virgin Mary as um, of greater estimate uh, than the Apostle Paul or Peter. I don't really see why we ought to. Maybe perhaps we should give more thought to her place. Um, but I, I, I'm not tracing there with, with Bob Inc. on that all the way, I don't think. Anyway, that's how he starts. And um, But she had to, by faith and obedience to God, you know, lay hold of salvation. It wasn't simply by carrying Jesus in her womb. Um, and, and, you know, as I recall, I mean, Calvin and others also had a high place in some ways, I think, for Mary that, you know, maybe we don't think of as much maybe maybe we should think more of but at any rate mary is the israelitess par excellence says bob inc who does not run ahead and act on her own but who receives in childlike faith what god bestows upon her whereas eve detached herself from the word of god and went her own way mary accepted the word of god without murmuring or arguing by god himself she was prepared and formed to be the receptor of his most sublime revelation. 
And that is pretty amazing. And especially when you consider, as Bob Inc. points out previously, how she is sort of the restorer of, you know, Eve. If, if Christ is the last Adam, you know, is Mary the last Eve? Um, I mean, that sounds, you know, my anti-Catholic bones are shaking, but... You know, she's no redeemer. She's not a co-redemptress redemptrix or anything like that. Um, but is there some sense in which Bavink is correct to see this parallel between, you know, where uh, Eve failed, Mary trusts in the Lord and the word of the angel who comes to her and, uh, you know, bears and has uh, Jesus. Well, I think there is something to that. And women is saved through childbearing and the son Jesus comes to the to Mary and, and is born of her, is born of woman, and has the redemption of all mankind. So, you know, yeah, uh, Mary's faith early on there is seen. I think in Scripture, her responses later in life perhaps aren't so, you know, Mary's holding certain things in her heart, maybe in an unrighteous way. Bavink seems to take it differently. Uh, maybe I'll read it if I come across it here, that, that he seems to have a very glowing perception of Mary. But just put it like that. Um, right, she was betrothed to Joseph, which is basically like being married already, but without living together and being sexually together yet. Um, but she's found to be a child. Joseph wants to put her away. But, you know, the angel comes... Things get straightened out. Joseph's an honorable man. He takes her as wife, but doesn't know her sexually until after the child is born. Um, you know, later on, after after that, really, Joseph isn't heard from. It's likely that he died before you know Jesus' earthly ministry began uh, at the cross. You know, Jesus tells John to take care of his mother, indicating. Uh, you know, that Joseph is not there. And, well, there's a lot of things that are indicated by that. Um, Jesus understands his duty as a child, especially for the, the woman, the mother, to be provided for. Um, if she's a widow, children are supposed to take care of their own. If, if, you know, Jesus cannot do that, he's asking John to do that. And so... Again, patriarchy, male headship, Jesus is, is showing that right here uh, from the cross and thinking of his mother, of his love for his mother and that, that intimate bond that is there. Um, what else? Uh, it is explicitly stated that he was submissive to them. That is, Jesus was submissive to his parents, which was necessary to fulfill all righteousness, that the God-man, Jesus Christ, yet was born of a child, uh, as a baby and as a child obeyed his mother and his father to fulfill our righteousness and in obedience to his heavenly father, God the Father. Um, right, The fifth commandment also belonged to that righteousness that he needed to fulfill as Savior of the world. Now, his spiritual kinship was more important than physical kinship, right? These are my fathers and brothers and sisters, those who do the will of you know, my father's will and follow me, as Jesus says. Um, so there is a priority, a pecking order, right? Um, your spiritual family is closer to you than your unbelieving physical flesh and blood family. But, 
your spiritual family doesn't destroy uh, yeah, the Christian family, the father and mother and child relationship. In Christ, these ideally are going to be redeemed whole because in the beginning, family, husband, wife, children together, be fruitful and multiply was good. And so Christ, in some sense, would have failed as a savior to restore us. Remember Bavink's idea of grace restores nature. If nature, in its best and good sense, as God made it in the garden before the fall, had families together serving and obeying and walking with the Lord, then if salvation in Christ breaks that up, then it is an impoverishment. Now, I imagine Reformed Baptists and others would say, well, no, it's just an even greater fulfillment. Uh, it's spiritualized. And now, as Jesus says, here my father and brother and mothers and them and so on. But, but Jesus on the cross saying, take care of my mother, John, shows that that physical flesh and blood family isn't obliterated by the grace of God, because that would not be grace restoring nature, but grace destroying nature. And of course, it is true that in the, the eschaton, when Christ returns and all things are made new, there will be no more marrying and given into marriage uh, between men and women. That, but, but that's not where we are at this present time. And it's not a step backward for God to re repair and mend the family. That's the only way forward. And so if we dispense with the family now, we're, we're at best making an error about where we are in redemptive history. We're not glorified in that glorified state yet. Um, and so the family continues on and in an even greater and more wholesome and pure and natural in that right sense of the word uh, in a more natural capacity. Um, the next section Jesus' regard for women, marriage, parents, and children. The Holy Family is the example of the Christian home. Um, this example is strengthened by the words and deeds of Jesus. He himself was not married. For his bride is the church whom he loved and for whom he gave himself so that he might purify and sanctify her, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Nevertheless, he was not a monk who was too pious to look at and speak with a woman. Right, And this is kind of the Amy Bird concern that men are too pious or too spiritually immature and weak to even converse and talk with women that are not their wives, and, you know, lest they uh, mentally violate them sexually or even physically. And look, there, there is a grain of truth to that. I mean, if our theology takes, it, takes us to a place where we cannot talk to the opposite sex at all, without lusting or simply saying it's, it's um, too risky, well, we have a problem because Jesus did this. Paul, P Peter, I mean, this, this happened. This occurred in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, um, to some degree or another. And it was good. The women assist Jesus even in his ministry and in his physical um, uh you know, food, they're homemakers and they help Jesus in that as well. And he's a single, you know, man <laughs> and they're assisting him uh, and so on and so forth. But what you don't really see, to my knowledge, anywhere is Jesus one-on-one -on -one with a woman, you know, behind closed doors 
in some kind of situation that would be, you know, intimate and compromising. Um, you might be at a large church and after a luncheon together, Sister Jan, we'll call her, just making up a name, don't know any particular Jans, you know, no person in particular mind here. Um, and your name is Bob and Jan and Bob are talking. They're not married to each other. They are married to some other people and it's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation and it's innocent and harmless and you know other people are around now if bob and jan for whatever reason choose or find themselves in some you know janitor's not closet that would make sense but some far-flung you know annex of the church where nobody's at and they're talking and yucking it up um probably sooner than later you need to be working your way back into you know, public view here, e even if for no other reason than if somebody happens to walk by and sees that, yeah, that's a little bit weird. Now, I'm sure some ladies today would shriek at me for saying that and saying I'm part of the problem and, you know, this is ridiculous and so on and so forth. Um, but I don't think that it is. Um, I'm not saying you have to be rude and be like, oh, no, woman, why are you here with me? We must you know, sprint back into public view. Um, but that doesn't need to be in your mind. You need to be at least wary of that. And I, to me, this is just common sense. I, I, I don't know how else you can see this. Uh, laws of attraction are still at play. Just because you're married doesn't mean that male and female still don't attract each other like, like magnets. I mean, they, they do. God has wired us that way. Maybe that's the problem is that some don't believe that. Some believe in this fairy tale where, you know, you marry your spouse and any kind of attraction to the opposite sex just completely disintegrates. It doesn't. And in some ways, I would even say it shouldn't. Going back to men rightly respecting all women as women and women rightly respecting men as men. There's, there's opposites attract, but opposites also righteously recognize the differences and praise those differences in a righteous way. You know, what does that mean? Well, I'll just give one example. This is years and years ago, five years ago, six years ago, I don't know, probably at least six or seven years ago, five, five or six years ago. But yeah, I think it was uh, one of Jocelyn's sisters were, uh, was getting married. I think it was around that time. Some event had us down in Florida before we lived there again. And I came out of uh, the room and I was dressed up in my, you know, suit and tie. And another one of Jocelyn's sisters said, oh, Thomas, you look real handsome or sharp or something like that. And there's nothing weird or odd or anything about that. Nobody even, it wasn't even the realm of thought uh, to think of it as anything strange or odd. There's nothing wrong. And so, you know, it's not wrong for, you know, someone of the opposite sex to recognize you know, that someone is dressed well and it is, a, you know, an attractive thing in that broad sense of the word. You know, if I said to Jocelyn's sister, oh, you know, that's a very pretty dress or, you, you know, you look very pretty in that dress or something, it, it, it doesn't have to mean uh, some weird sexual connotation or something, you know, terrible like that, right? It, it doesn't even have to be something that would even pass people's minds. Like you wouldn't like, whisper that in private in case it was misunderstood, you would say that in front of everybody because it's, it's harmless. 
right? But there's still a recognition of differences of male and female. If I put on a dress and came out and someone said I was handsome, that'd be a problem, <laughs> you know, or, or, or vice versa. You know, a woman comes out in a, you know, a man's tuxedo or something. Uh, we still recognize differences. There's a feminine beauty in general that can rightly be acknowledged and admired and even righteously enjoyed and a man's uh, handsomeness and physical features that all women can brightly look to and, and, and praise. And there's nothing wicked in that. Now, sin is always in our hearts, and so it can quickly turn into something bad for sure. Um, but again, I, I think it's just, it's not like once you get married, we're all gender neutral, amorphous creatures, and we don't still relate to each other as male and female. We do. And it's just a question of whether we're going to do it righteously and consciously or perhaps we do it righteously so well that it becomes unconscious. That's when a society is at a really high point. We're not there right now, so we have to have podcasts like this where we have to talk about stuff that in a better culture would be obvious. And they'd just be, you know, scratching their heads, listening to me talk like this, like, you know, I'm teaching adults the alphabet or something. Uh, or I'm teaching myself the alphabet and trying to struggle through how do we understand what comes after A and B? Is it C and D? You know, th this stuff in a, in a really healthy culture, society, I think, um, they just kind of unconsciously know these things. But we're not there because we're in a very sinful, sexually messed up and even with gender messed up, perverted culture. All right. Um, let's see. G uh, Bobbing talks about how Jesus interacts with some women here. He deals with them with complete openness and freedom. Women were among his most beloved disciples. They follow him in Galilee and Judea, minister to him from their possessions, and are witnesses of his crucifixion and burial. Uh, right, the first witnesses of his, of his resurrection as well and subsequent appearances. The disciples were surprised that he spoke with a woman in Sychar, but Jesus himself saw nothing strange about that. For everywhere and constantly and in everything, it was his food to do the will of his father and to complete his work. With regard to the woman who in Simon's house had wet his feet with her tears and dried them with the hair of her head, he forgave her many sins because she had loved much. Luke 7, 36 through 50. He allowed the adulterous woman to depart from him uncondemned, sending her away with the words, Go, and from now on, sin no more. John eight eleven. Concerning the harlots and the tax collectors, he says that they will enter the kingdom of heaven ahead of others. All right. Um, Bavink just says, In this way, Christ honored the woman and lifted her once again after her fall. At the same time, he honors and restores marriage. Um, he says further down, And marriage, despite being honorable and sacred, is a provisional state and is restricted to this earthly dispensation, for in the resurrection people will no more be taken or given in marriage. The redeemed will then be like the angels of God in heaven. Now, I did have a professor, church history professor, and he just was speculating, not saying he was dogmatic about this. This is a very conservative pro professor who I appreciated. Um, but maybe in this instance he should have stuck to just strict church history. <laughs> You know, but he said in heaven, when it says, when scripture says here that we'll be like the angels, that means we'll be no, not only will we not be married and given uh, in marriage, 
which is exactly what that verse says when Jesus says that. He says, in that sense, we'll be like the angels. We will not. Uh, we will be like the angels, neither marrying nor given into marriage. Well, this professor took it further and said he thinks that we will, therefore, like the angels, not even be male or female anymore. Now, that's not what all the text says or the context even of the text. It's about the marriage portion. But just because we're not going to be married or given a marriage, uh, while marriage is, is exceedingly central, I would say, to our uh, why God made us male and female, it's not the only thing. Um, in the beginning, God made man male and female after his own image and his own likeness. And so God never changes. And so, uh, yeah, um, male and female will remain because that bears the image of God, male and female. And to, to lose that, you not only lose yourself, you not only would not have a glorified body that would be in keeping with your body here below, which would mess up all kinds of teaching, I would think, on the resurrection of the body, um, but, but you, would not, you wouldn't even be what you were on earth because you wouldn't be Thomas a man or, you know, uh, Jocelyn the woman. It, it, it would just be a completely different thing. And so for those who are trying to sort of trace the trajectories of where we're going to end up in glory and looking way ahead, trying to work backward from that into where we are now before Christ has returned and make decisions based on what's going to happen in the future. First of all, we don't always know what it's going to be like in the future, but when you get off the rails like that, you're really going to mess up things if you try to apply that kind of thinking to how we are now. Uh, like, you know, the passage of scripture that says in Christ, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. Well, that doesn't mean that sexual distinctions are gone or that ethnic distinctions are gone or that there aren't, you know, bosses and, and workers. Uh, all that remains. But in Christ, we all are, you know, on equal footing, if you will, before the Lord and directly connected and saved by him. Uh, which is the point of, of, of that passage, among other things. Um, Pavink says that within these boundaries, Christ acknowledged and respected marriage as an institution of God. Simply his attendance at the wedding in Cana and the first miracle that he performed there provide convincing proof of this. Moreover, he honored marriage, especially when he traced it back to God's original ordinance and safeguarded marriage against various sins. Jesus did not come, he did not come to give a new law, including in relation to marriage, but he came to fulfill the law and the prophets and to bring them to full realization and application. Right? So the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, when he forbids not only the sin of adultery, but he says that one who even looks lustfully at a married woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, such a person, if it were up to him, would already have caused that woman, married woman, to commit adultery. The, um, you know, that whole back and forth there, that development, you know, that the commandments of the Old Testament really are aiming at the heart, not merely the externals, but even the lusts of the heart. You hate a cause in your heart. You're a murderer at heart. You look at a woman with lust. That's not your wife. You fornicate or adulterer. You're an adulterer at heart. And you've, you've still broken the commandments. You've still broken the law. Bob Inc. is understanding, rightly, of course, that 
Jesus is not adding to the Ten Commandments or, or even making it go to a new dimension at the heart. It was always aimed at the heart. The Israelites didn't have a heart for God. Most of them, right? Most of them were not born again or regenerated. Showing the need for salvation, showing for the need for Christ to be cut off on the cross for our sins, to be uh, raised to newness of life, and in that resurrection power and life, to ascend to the right hand of the Father, crowned in, in glory with authority and power, and sending the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit by which he was raised, is now in our hearts, so that we have that resurrection life and power in us. And I just want to take an aside here to kind of maybe help us understand a lot of what Bobbing's going to say. He doesn't say this directly here that I see, but it's just, just I think it's, well, it's, it's just common teaching. It's not a pet belief of mine or anything, but I think it's applicable here um, that the, uh, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is not poured out with the same, you know, prevalence and power as it is in the New Testament. The scripture is clear in that. In the new covenant, you know, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your, you know, your sons and your daughters will, you know, have dreams and prophesy and so on and so forth. And there's just going to be this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And not just in the signs and wonders that, it, that comes upon Jew and Gentile, but the depth of our communion with God through Christ, the risen Lord and Savior, is richer and deeper because Christ has come and laid down his life for his people now. The Old Testament saints were looking forward to the coming Christ and were still saved in and by and through him, even in the Old Testament. But they were still looking forward to that coming sacrifice. And therefore, it was necessarily uh, an impoverished uh, position, at least insofar as the blessings received in that salvation prior to Christ's coming. They had the one and same salvation, the complete forgiveness of sins, but the fullness, the fullest bloom of that would not come until Christ returns. And our salvation still is incomplete and not fully bloomed and realized until we're glorified. So if we can recognize that now, that there's sort of two stages to the new covenant, you know, the covenant um, after Christ's first coming and then the, the new covenant after Christ's first coming and the new covenant after Christ returns for the second time to make all things new, and that our state then will be far more blessed than it is now, then we, I think we can also understand that we are in a far more privileged state now than the Old Testament, Old Covenant saints were before Christ came, right? So for why does this matter? Well, Bobbing is going to talk about how in Christ, the family, the Christian family is being lifted up and restored more and more, better and better than it was even in the Old Covenant. And that's not hard to see. When you look at David's adultery and murder, and murder because he wanted to take Bathsheba as his wife and, and, and have, you know, commit adultery with her, and yet he's called a man after God's own heart, and he doesn't necessarily raise his kids well. He, he kind of lets them run amok, and they ruin his kingdom. As God says, the sword will not depart from your house and your family. He loses his child, the first child with Bathsheba, and of course Solomon comes from Bathsheba and, and David after that. And then Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he's the wisest man. And he tells us all about in Proverbs, watch out for that seductress, right? And yet he's considered wise and at some serious level failed to take that advice. And so I, I think this is important to talk about because people today look at a minister who has a moral failing, especially sexual failing, 
and I think rightly are disgusted by that and believe that he is rightly disqualified from office. And I would say, if it's adultery, even if it's repented of quickly, that ordinarily, um, I think that's a for-life ban from the office. Could it be after many years, decades, or at least a decade, perhaps, in extraordinary circumstances where some sort of restoration to that office could occur? Maybe. But this is a very serious sin. It, it pictures Christ in the church, and it tells a lie about it in a very open, serious way. I think other sins are disqualifying too, right? Insubordinate, unbelieving children of ministers. I think the qualifications for elders on that is, is pretty clear. We can have some debates about if it's just talking about external conformity of the children appear to be Christians while they're under the, uh, the house of the father of the minister. Or is it actually saying that, that the child has to be born again? Um, but be that as it may, and I don't want to touch that any farther than I have already, there are qualifications that the elder must be held to. And, and why are these lifted up so high when we see that it would disqualify virtually every Old Testament saint that is held up as a godly example? Um, with exception to maybe somebody like Job or a few others, but... Um, and I think the answer is the Spirit is poured out in greater um, power and effulgence, if that's the right word, uh, because of Christ, what Christ has done and, and in, his, in his coming. And so, yeah, it, it, you just, in the New Covenant, a man whose name happens to be Solomon, who has 700 wives and 200 concubines, and writes a book kind of like Proverbs, we would laugh him off the stage rightly as a hypocrite. But in the Old Covenant, there was a difference there. And I, I, that doesn't explain all of it, but I think it explains some of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no, we don't have to listen or think that just because, you know, King David had a great fall and Solomon it, it was led away into some idolatry from these pagan women that weren't of Israel, that today, you know, a minister on paper is held to a high standard, but could still have, you know, could still be a polygamist. And, you know, when it says husband of one wife, rules his household well. That's just paper orthodoxy, but we know in practice that never happens. Look at David and Solomon, therefore, let's be uber lenient on the ministers today. No, that doesn't work. It's not true. Why? Because Christ has come. He's making all things new, even now, ruling and reigning. We're now in the last days. We're in a much more privileged position. We're not in the temple and tabernacle worship, but, you know, we in, in Christ, he dwells in us. We are the temple of God now. We are holy and sanctified and set apart. Do not join yourself to a harlot. Right? Don't commit that sexual sin, as Paul says. There's just a complete transformation. We, are, we should be thankful that we were born under the new covenant and not the old covenant because it is so much more excellent and better, as Hebrews talks about in other places. And so the family really is being restored under this new covenant dispensation. It's, yeah, it's always fun to use covenant and dispensation together, but hey, the Westminster, Westminster Confession does that too. All right, um, let's see, going back to Bob Inc. But he supplies uh, a moral law. Okay, this is, he's talking about divorce here. I'm not entirely sure if I agree completely with Bob Inc.'s views on divorce or not. I read this, you know, a little bit quickly. Um, 
let me just read what he says here. Concerning that, he says nothing at all. Jesus says nothing at all about uh, a ground uh, for a divorce that was supposed to be legally valid and was supposed to be included in the law. Um, he does not say what the lawgiver in this or that country must stipulate with regard to divorce. He supplies a moral law that must bind the consciences of conscience of his disciples. In connection with that, he proceeds from the original institution of marriage. In terms of its nature and essence, marriage is the bond of one man and one woman becoming one flesh for their entire lives. In this way, God has joined them together. And what God has thus joined, man may not put asunder. asunder. And so even with the innocent party, uh, in a case of lawful biblical divorce where, you know, the spouse is an unbeliever and doesn't want to remain in marriage and is the one who initiates the divorce and won't remain married. From what I'm gathering, Bobnick is saying the question is sort of left open whether even the innocent party is free to remarry. Um, I, I, I don't know, I, you know, just... I don't have the passages in scripture in front of me, but it seems quite clear that the innocent party can remarry. And if adultery is committed and you seek a divorce because there is no possibility of real reconciliation, you can be divorced and righteously remarry if you're the innocent party. Um, and Bavink and others would seem to lean towards, you know, you can only divorce even if you're sinned against in that way, like with adultery, if the unbelieving, the uh, sinful spouse that had committed adultery and or the unbelieving spouse absolutely refuses to remain in the marriage. Now, I'm not arguing quickly for divorce, even when there's lawful grounds biblically to do it. Um, but I am going to say I, I'm not so sure that... Um, one is required absolutely to remain in the marriage just because the guilty party or unbeliever is is willing to, uh, particularly in the case of, of adultery. Um, but that's, you know, those are more debatable issues that are not necessarily at the heart of what Bobbink is, is driving at here. That's when things go awry, right? Um, but easy divorce, no-fault divorce, is clearly unbiblical. Okay. He talks about this passage with, uh, I guess that's right, the Pharisees and, and Corbin and uh, the rabbis. Um, you know, they would um, give money to the temple such that they're saying, oh, this money is reserved for, you know, that, and therefore I can't, pay for or help and assist my parents. And Jesus is saying, that's wrong. You can't do that. That's not right. You have to help out and, you know, provide. Um, I don't know if there's much more to say about that. Uh, beyond that, the family is still an important bond. It's still a sin for children to not obey their parents and honor their parents and provide for their parents. And Paul speaks about that as well, that, that widows who are really widows, which would be ones who do not have their children and grandchildren to help them, it says that the children and grandchildren should show piety providing for their parents. And we also know on the other end of that in Proverbs and other places in scripture that the good parent saves up money and leaves an inheritance for his children and his grandchildren. 
Now, sometimes financially in this fallen world, that's just not possible. But many of us don't even consider that it's, it's actually a sin to not do that. It's not pious, you know, just take this as advice. No, God is saying, you must do this. Parents, you must save up for your children as much as you possibly can in some ways, right? And children, you must uh, return the favor in their old age. Help them out. I mean, look at all these uh, uh, nursing homes and rest homes. You know, I don't think those are ideal. I think when places are so full of them, it's, a, it's an indication of the family societal, societal bond breaking down. And look what God has brought about. He's brought a plague, a virus that especially attacks the elderly and especially the elderly in the nursing homes where it's especially, uh, they're especially susceptible to succumbing to this virus. Am I saying every, every uh, man or woman in the nursing home is in sin or every child that puts their, their parents in there is necessarily in sin? No. But you can't tell me that when a whole generation makes this a norm in practice, that it's a faithful thing when God says that it isn't. It's unfaithfulness. It's wickedness. And it does seem that there's a judgment from God on this. Um, and I realize there's hybrid situations where, you know, you can, you can still help your family a lot in a home or you can have uh, like one of those visiting angels type things where they live with you, but you have people assisting. And I'm not saying any of that's altogether wrong. It's just that when you just abandon your parents, it's just, it's just as bad as a parent abandoning their child while they're still children. So younger people, learn piety. And parents, love your children and save up for them, but don't blow it all on yourself, all your money and, and, and savings. Oh, we can buy this really nice thing now because we got this promotion or we got a little bit of money now. Yeah, you can buy it, but at the expense of your children's inheritance, don't do it. Tis better to give than to receive, right? Especially when you're giving to your own children. All right. Um, And Jesus talks about and recognizes the tender relationship between parents and children. He sympathizes with the lonely epileptic and mute child whom a man from the crowd brought to him and he healed the child from his sickness. Matthew 17, 14 through 20. He, he saves uh, the child of the royal official from death. John 4, 46 through 54. Was moved with inner pity concerning the widow in Nain who was bringing her only son to the cemetery whom he called back to life. Luke 7, 11 through 15, and a little while later raised the little daughter of Jairus from the dead, Luke 8, 41 through 56. Jesus loved with a grand and profound love. He permitted the children to come directly to him and laid his hand on them in blessing, right? He takes them up in his arms and he, and he I would say, is showing that they're part of the covenant, covenant blessings laying upon them, bestowing upon them as the faithful brought their children to him. Um, it's all but a baptism, <laughs> Uh, he puts them before his disciples as an example of simplicity, uprightness, and humility, Matthew 18.3. And he rejoices about the little ones who believe in his name, Matthew 18.5. Um, even as on the day of his royal entry to, into Jerusalem, the children of the, in the temple shouted their hosannas to him, he views that as fulfilling the Old Testament idea that from the mouths of young children and nursing babes, the Lord establishes strength and fashions fashions praise for himself, Matthew 21, 16. 
Then he turns, Bhavik turns to the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles. Um, and of course, they agree with the message of Christ because they were sent out by Christ to deliver his very message. <laughs> um, he says that with the exception of Paul, the apostles all were married, likely, including Peter as well. Uh, Matthew 8, 14, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, you can look at it for some on that. Like Jesus, Paul considered the unmarried state in some instances to deserve preference, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 17. But he is a far cry on that account from disapproving marriage as impermissible or marital relations as impure. I think it's worth noting that, yeah, it does seem that the apostles were all married except for Paul. And, of course, Jesus was unmarried because he's God, the God-man. He's not, you know, he, he came to bring forth spiritual seed, not physical seed. And he does have a bride. It's not that he's not married in any sense. He is married in the sense that he's that he came for which is to redeem and purchase his bride for himself and so really there's only one who's not married which is paul and yet paul is prominently featured in the new testament which i think gives some balance you know to you know must you be married or single or what what place you know the vast majority are going to be married but you can also be greatly in service to the lord even if you never marry or even if you're ministering while unmarried, like Paul is. Perhaps Paul married later. I guess the Bible doesn't really make that clear or say one way or another. Um, but I think the Bible here is, is you know, showing, look, most of you are going to get married. Paul understands that. In most of his letters, he addresses families, right? Because he knows most of them are, most people are going to be married. It's the norm. He is the exception to that. And he understands that. He's not trying to make the exceptions what uh, the norm. Uh, he's teaching to the norm, even though he is himself is not normal in that sense. And boy, could we learn a lesson from that. Right? Just because you, you are exceptional doesn't mean you are better. <laughs> Just because you're not normal doesn't mean you have to interpret that as weird or a loser or being belittled, right? The way we've twisted these words around in our modern culture can make it sound bad. You're not normal. That's right, I'm exceptional. <laughs> well, you know, I think you get the point that I'm trying to make here. Um, he still, Paul still approves of marriage even though he is not married. On the contrary, in opposition toward those who commanded abstaining from marriage and from various foods, Paul insists that every creature of God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving and consecrated by the word and prayer. Marriage is not only honorable, but already, from the time of its institution it was, and in terms of its essence, continues to be, a symbol of the intimate fellowship existing between Christ and his church. Right? If uh, marriage fell away as normative, then the picture of Christ in the church would fall away as a normal thing. It, it, it's just not possible for that to happen. It's rooted in creation and what man and woman is. Earthly marriage images the heavenly and serves to prepare for this heavenly marriage. For the ultimate goal of history is that a humanity may emerge of which Christ is the head and in which, and in which God is all in all. Ephesians 5.32 and we must never lose sight of that um, in our earthly marriages. It's to prepare us for the heavenly 
you know, wedding supper of the Lamb and that, that ultimate marriage that we have. And I, I do think it's important, you know, to guard from both ditches here. Earthly marriage is a good in and of itself. It's a creational good. It is something that will, if you want to say, give way and glory. But that doesn't mean that it's good is merely as a picture of glory, of that marriage that we have to, to Christ. Marriage is good, and it's for its own sake. Um, Bavink even makes the point, that, well, in fact, right here he does it. Marriage is therefore not a Christian institution in the sense that it owes its origin and its arrangement to Christianity. Right? It, it's, it's for all cultures, for all peoples. It's a good even outside of a Christian establishment. Uh, for it dates from the creation, having received at that time its rule and law, and despite the frequency of its corruption, appears among all peoples. The New Testament as well returns repeatedly to the original institution of marriage to derive from that the regulation in terms of which marriage should be arranged today. Right, and I haven't worked through this all as a pastor entirely, or at least someone who's seeking to be a pastor, but... Um, some ministers, as I understand, will not marry unbelievers. Now, we certainly shouldn't marry a believer to an unbeliever. That would be clearly unrighteous. But the question is, okay, we marry Christians to other Christians, but should unbelievers be married to unbelievers, other unbelievers? I think the answer you have to say is, well, yes, because it's it's, it's good. Now, you may look at the individual unbelievers and say they should not be married to each other, perhaps anybody. But as far as unbelievers go... You say, hey, as far as it's possible to be a decent human level good that un two unbelievers can, can have, um, and if they really want, for whatever reason, um, you know, a minister to uh, officiate the wedding, uh, I suppose you could still say, well, just get it done at the courtroom and don't bring the church into this when it's an unholy union because you're unbelievers. But I'm not sure if two unbelievers getting married makes it um, a wicked thing. You know, the Bible doesn't say marry only if you're a Christian. It does say for Christians to marry only in the Lord. Um, but marriage is, is honorable among all, as Scripture says, right? So uh, marriage is, is a good to curb evil even among pagans and unbelievers. Uh, Bavink says, The New Testament as well returns repeatedly to the original institution of marriage to derive from that the regulation in terms of which marriage should be arranged today. Adam was made first, so we're going back to these creational norms that the apostles continue. It hasn't been obliterated, right? Grace restores nature. So Paul argues back to nature in its pristine condition prior to the fall. And he says, Adam was, was made first, then Eve. The man is the head and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Man was not created from woman, but woman from man. And Adam was not tempted but the woman was tempted and fell into transgression. On all of these considerations is based the admonition that the wife must acknowledge the husband and support him as head of the family. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14. The ordinance whose basis lies in creation is neither weakened nor destroyed by special revelation. Rather, it is established and strengthened thereby and acquires a richer and deeper significance through special revelation. Um, right, special revelation is just, uh, you know, enriching. It's not destroying nature here. Um, 
So certainly marriage between believers is much richer and beautiful, and we have the true picture of what it is showing. Um, but just as unbelievers ought to, you know, eat and take care of their yard and be neighborly and kind to others, you know, so they should marry uh, and, and be loving in that marriage to their spouses. Uh, if marriage images the fellowship between Christ and his church, then this ought to be manifested primarily in that fact that both husband and wife enter their marital covenant in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7.39. And generally, the apostle warns believers not to be yoked with, un with unbelievers. He is not wanting thereby to cut off all contact with pagans, for then Christians would actually need to go out of the world, as he says in 1 Corinthians 5.10 and also chapter 10, 20, verse 27. Rather, it is undoubtedly his intention that believers should not enter into such fellowship with unbelievers, whereby they are robbed of their own freedom, become, uh, become unfaithful to their Christian duty, and could be brought under the yoke of unbelievers. Um, yeah, and yeah, this can be applied to mixed marriages where there's an unbeliever and a believer. Uh, and God does not want that. Just as he didn't want the Israelites to marry outside of the Israelite community because they alone were God's people at that time. You can lead your heart astray. Uh, the spouse's home where there's only one believer, whichever that is, the male or the female, the wife or the husband, ought to be a Christian home, where the unbelieving is hus husband is sanctified through the believing wife and the children are holy as well. Now, the Bible teaches how to do that for the woman. Even when the woman is, becomes a Christian and is still married to an unbelieving man, she's supposed to win him without a word, so to speak, the, Christ the, the scriptures say. So she still submits even to her unbelieving husband, just as slaves are to obey their masters, uh, even the harsh taskmasters. Now, that's not saying that, you know, racially driven slavery is permissible. Masters are also su supposed to treat their slaves well, knowing that they are slaves to Christ, Christian slave masters, and that slaves, those slaves, are also free in Christ. And Bavink talks about that, how these relations, earthly relations, still exist, but they take on a whole new almost seemingly contradictory tone at the spiritual dimension. Masters, Christian masters, consider yourself slaves because you are under God's authority and a slave to Christ and his righteousness. Slaves, consider yourselves free unto the Lord, right? So there's this liberty for the slave and the master has to remember that there's still uh, an authority and a slavery that he must respect. And from that, the slave obeys his master unto the Lord, and the master treats his slaves well. And the word of God gives this richness to that. And you can also apply the master-slave analogy to employer-employees, you know, effectively, relatively speaking, as well. Wives are still to submit to their husbands, yet know that even if their husbands are unbelievers, they're free in the Lord. Does that mean the woman should just take a pummeling, a beating from their husbands? No. It doesn't mean that uh, Old Testament, New Testament, that's that's clear. But that's not what should take place. The wife should seek uh, help from the police, just as if it was, you know, the neighbor beating her up or sexually abusing her. Uh, and the church should take disciplinary action against that abusive husband. Um but it is to say that the wife has to suffer wrongs at the hands of her husband as unto the Lord. And the husband also must deal with various content, contentious and faucet dripping 
so to speak, wives, bearing that unto the Lord for the good of one another. And hopefully that the, you know, the harsh husband will become a loving and tender husband to his wife and the hard and mean woman will become soft and loving and um, uh, receptive and, and a helpmate to her husband. Um, the husband remains the head of the family since he's the image and glory of God. The wife remains submissive to him because as one created after and from uh, let me start that over. Because as one created after and from and for him, she is the glory of her husband. And I had a long discussion with my wife on that because I've always kind of scratched my head on that a little bit. Um, and, and I don't want to speak overly dogmatically, but I think what this is driving at here is, you know, the wife is the glory of her husband in the context of that passage. The husband is also the glory of, 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 of God. Well, how's, how's the man, I should say, the, the, the glory, how's the man the glory of God himself and the woman the glory of the man? Well, man is the image bearer of God. Woman is too, but it's, it's in a different way because she's taken out of the man and is a helpmate to the man. So her glory is in being a helpmate. And so it is the man's glory, right? When the woman is the glory of the man, the man, that's possessive, the husband's, the husband's glory. I know this is probably not making a lot of sense the way I'm saying it, but the glory is the man's seen in the woman's serving and magnifying her husband, showing that the husband has this respect and dignity that she bestows in her service to her husband. As the man, as the vice regent under God, fills the earth and subdues it unto the glory of God. So when man is said to be the glory of God, that is God's glory. He possesses that glory as the man lives unto the Lord and exhibits his service to the Lord. And by the man faithfully serving the Lord and giving him the glory and honor to his name, that glorifies God. That is God's glory in the man. And the wife serving her husband is glorifying her husband rightly understood, not in an idolatrous way or anything like that, by being his helpmate, showing the dignity and um, reverence and glory of the man. Man is glorious. He's in a high position. Therefore, he has a helper, his wife. And so in that way, wife as helper is the glory of, of the man. I, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Uh, nevertheless, Bavink says, how wonderfully their mutual relationship is renewed and sanctified. In Christ, there is no, woman, no man and woman, Galatians 3.28. Both are heirs of the grace of life, 1 Peter 3.7. Right, we're both man and woman collectively, the whole church, male or female, is the bride of Christ. Both share the same faith, the same baptism, the same Lord's Supper. Both have received the same Holy Spirit. Both share the same access to the Father. But again, note, male and female in Christ, all the church, male and female, is the bride of Christ, and yet Christ still is upholding, and the apostles are still upholding the Christian family, male and female, if the husband is the head, and where the husband is picturing Christ. Right? And as some have, I think, helpfully pointed out, men as Christians are not individually brides of Christ. It is the church collectively that is a bride, the bride of Christ.
you know, so we shouldn't, you can just, you can get in so many errors. You know, I'm a man, but I'm also a bride. Well, connected to the whole church, yes. Um, but, you know, not individually. Um, you know, well, I think it's enough on that. We are all individually children of God, but collectively the bride of Christ. Christ does not have, you know, millions and billions of, of brides. Um, let's see. In, in Christ, there's a deeper dimension of the Christian family that's realized. Um, the husband must love his wife, live for her, and surrender himself to her, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, while the wife must be in submission to her husband in the Lord and as unto the Lord. Ephesians 5, 22-33, Colossians 3, 18-19, 1 Peter 3, 1-7. And I think for clarity's sake, that was also true in the Old Testament, but that was more fully revealed in Christ coming in the flesh and fulfilling all righteousness and, and laid out in the New Testament and the apostles. That great mystery of you know God made flesh redeeming a bride for himself where the church is the bride of Christ and marriage pictures that whole relationship that we have of Christ certainly is made much more clear in the New Testament, but the shadows of that, of course, were in the Old Testament as well. And God is said to uh, reach out to his people, Israel, as a husband to them and they as his as his bride <clears throat> similar similarly <clears throat> excuse me children continue to be obligated according to the commandment to render obedience to their parents ephesians 6 1 through 3 both parties do, do not stand in opposition against each other but they constitute a united fellowship in the lord likewise the children are holy ought to be at home in the domain of the church and are heirs of the promise of the covenant Acts 2.39, 1 Corinthians 7.14, 1 Timothy 2.15. That's why we as Presbyterians baptize our infant babies, because they're part of the family of God, part of the church, part of the covenant. Uh, it doesn't guarantee their salvation, but it does show they have a covenantal relationship to God. And there's privileges for our covenant children, just as there were for the Old Testament Israelite children. Parents must nurture their children in the teaching and admonition of the Lord, and children must love their parents and obey them in the Lord. For um, Ephesians 6. 1 and 4, Colossians 3, 20 through 21. With all their differences, husbands, wives, and children together constitute a chosen generation, a holy people, a royal priesthood. And Bavink does talk about how even women, you know, share in that royal priesthood. Well, I've really got to wrap this up because I am almost completely out of time here. Um, so let's just wrap up with this. Uh, the last section is the blessing of Christianity. For family living um, and it really goes into how it's lifted up how the pagans the Greeks and the Romans had descended into barbarism and the women are treated like sex slaves in Christ this is starting to be rolled back and women are treated with dignity and children are treated well again instead of the children being shipped off you know and run and love uh, cared for by slave uh, other slaves or servants the mothers are taking care of them the fathers are involved the family is brought together again in and through Christ. The earthly family is because it's recreating and restoring those earthly relationships. So that's what Christ provides. That's what Christ accomplishes. Um, many of these women perform significant ministries, which I think we'll have to touch on next time because that's going to be controversial. And I'm just flat out of time here. Uh, man, the time just escaped me. Um, so what we'll do, I'm almost done, but what we'll have to do is we'll touch on that next time. Just a little bit about the women's different roles, helping, um, 
in their homes, having churches, assisting and ministering, and how does that relate today with church offices and women being forbidden from entering the ordained office and so on? How we flesh that all out? Well, we'll talk about that next time and then also get into chapter six. Thanks. God bless. So, uh, just kidding about waiting till later. I see that I can, I guess, add another segment, which I think will seam seamlessly connect uh, to the end of my my hourly limit recording was coming up, but you can add a second segment to it, long story short. So, even though it's late, while well, it's fresh in my mind, I, I do want to finish this chapter off in five minutes or less, if possible, here. Which won't be easy, because we are getting into some of the really thick stuff here, I would say, uh, that's debated today. So Bobbing says this, Many of these women, um, let me go back to the women first that he's referencing, uh, we are told about the many women who belonged to the church in Jerusalem, not only Mary, the mother of Jesus, but also Mary, the mother of Mark. Uh, that's in Acts 1, 14, 5, 14, and Acts 12, 12. While we are told concerning Thessalonica and Berea that many prominent women there were converted to the Lord, Acts 17, verse 4 and 12, the book of Acts and the letters of the apostles acquaint us with Tabitha and Joppa, with Lydia and Philippi, with Damaris and Athens, with Priscilla and Ephesus, with Phoebe and Centria. Centria, yeah, I'm, I'm going to butcher the names, but with Nympha and Colossae, and with Euodia and Synecdoche and Philippi. Syntyche and Philippi. And in Romans 16, Paul mentions in addition to 18 brothers, no fewer than eight sisters to whom he was sending his special greeting. <clears throat> now, Many of these women also perform significant ministries in the church. They received, that is, the apostles received, in their homes. Uh, or, or, I'm sorry, they received, the women received the apostles in their homes. Acts 12, 12, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, Colossians 4, 15. These women helped the apostles in the work of ministry, Romans 16, 3, and then verse 6 through 15 occasionally led in the gathering of believers, though not to teach, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, 1 Timothy 2, 12, 1 Peter 3, and 3, verse 1, but certainly to pray and to prophesy, 1 Corinthians 11, 5. Now, I want to pause there because the gift of prophecy uh, has ceased. Some believe in continuing revelation and gifts of prophecy and so on. Some churches have realized that, so some will just dispute that as well. That's why this gets so thorny. But if prophecies and prayers and connection to prophecies have ceased, then women praying and prophesying in church also has ceased. And even then, if you were to argue that it is to continue, which it is not to, but even if you were to argue that it is, I believe 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about women prophesying with their head covered, with a head covering on. Well, how many churches actually practice it according to what Scripture commands? They don't. Most of them don't even do that, right? So even if it were continuing, many churches still don't practice it as the Bible actually said it was occurring in that first century. Why is prophecy you know, why, why is there no more prophecy? Because that was an indication of the outpouring of the Spirit when the New Covenant began after Christ ascended and not everybody had the Bible written down. The Bible was not even completed yet as, as in that first century it was still being written. 
And so for the message to spread, God showed this great outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh. The males and the females are, are having dreams and visions and prophesying. It's a great uh, upheaval in a good way, but it was just that. It was an earthquake of the Spirit, if you will. Earthquakes are, in this case, it was a good earthquake, but they don't last forever. And that foundation has been laid. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 tells us, you know, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, talking about Jesus, no longer by the prophets and so on, um, but by his son. And that's all recorded for us now in scripture. Wasn't true at the time of these men and women prophesying. Anyway, um, Pavink says perhaps these women were also occasionally tasked with one or another project in the midst of the congregation without holding a particular office. Romans 16, 1, 1 Timothy 3, 11, and chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. Now, I will say up front that some have done way more careful study on these issues with these verses than I have. It's not that I've never thought about them or looked at them, but some have, because it's important and urgent, have really carefully studied them and so you know I want to speak at length where I feel confident in doing and I want to speak less where I have less confidence Um, but even what Bob Inc. is maintaining is that the women were not teaching because scripture says that he did not permit a woman to speak right in the in the churches in the assemblies they cannot teach doesn't mean they can't talk to their husband or something like that asking them a question or you know, talk to their the person in the other aisle or pew or whatever just about how it's going. It's, it's not speaking as in as in teaching. Now, yeah, you got to square that with prophesying and praying, but um, again, you can see that as a special category. That's not continuing today. Um, but just to look at a few of these verses. Um, I think I want to go to Romans 16. So when Bob Inc. says they help the apostles in the work of ministry, just to give you like, you know, okay, what what does Bob Inc. mean by that? Well, he's quoting Romans 16, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Um, he talks in verse, well, he goes on, verse 6, Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, Stachys I don't know, <laughs> my beloved Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Uh, greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia. Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Right? So there's not like, you know, greet these female 
teachers. But there are greetings. And if we know how the women minister to Jesus for his you know, physical sustenance and needs, I'm not sure why we would think these women, by and large, were doing anything drastically different. Because that's what God has called women to do throughout history. And that's what women are made to be. And helpers in that way. And so they should be praised and commended when they give such aid and supply such help. And so to try to turn this into a flattening out of the offices or even informally women should be teaching in ways that are virtually indistinguishable from ministers and, and, and men uh, is simply not borne out in scripture here. But that women were helpers and praised and spoken of highly uh, and even could informally take, you know, a man who was only trained in the baptism of John but didn't know the ways of, of all of what Jesus has done yet and speak to him. Of course that can occur. If I'm leading a Bible study and women are present and they say something that is a contribution, and in fact is a contribution I haven't even thought of, and so therefore I am learning from them, there's no problem in that. I shouldn't pretend I didn't learn something from what they said. I shouldn't say, hey, you know too much, so you can't talk. We're not talking about anything like that. They aren't teaching there. They are contributing to the conversation. But they're not functioning as the teacher. Are they speaking and contributing? Yes, and that's good. Um, but it's not uh, standing up and leading the Bible study. It's contributing to a Bible study led by a man. It's under the authority of, of a man. I learned from my wife in what she says and thinks about. There's, there, there's, so there's no problem with that. There's no, you know, that's just nonsense to think that. I, I was at Bible college and many of the ladies there said a lot of good stuff that I thought, oh, that's, that's helpful, that's wonderful. Why didn't I think of that, right? So it's not about the fact that women can't contribute or think or be theologically astute. And we can debate whether or not they're as suitable by their nature, by being a woman, to that or not. But even if they're not, doesn't mean they don't still sometimes help, even in what they think, even what they say, even in connecting the dots for us men doesn't mean, therefore, that they should have any place to be a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, an elder. Um, you know, I can also change a diaper, and sometimes I do, to help out. Right? I can wash the dishes. Um, I can cook the meals. I can do things that may more pertain to what my wife is to do doesn't mean I should become the homemaker, right? I, hopefully that's a decent parallel to make there. That makes sense. Um, let's see. Yeah, just wrapping up here. Christianity did, Christianity did exclude the woman from ecclesiastical office and did not elevate her to the rank of a priestess, but... It did introduce a universal priesthood of believers in which the woman shared as well and did so in no small measure. Uh, the significance that the woman acquired in the church affected her position in society. Whereas in the Roman world, she was gradually denigrated to the position of slave or an instrument of pleasure for the man. Now with Christianity, she again became a unique independent personality with her own mind and will. 
She remained man's helpmeet, but along with him inherited the same grace. In the Christian faith, husband and wife were restored to one another, and various sins of harlotry and unchastity, adultery and divorce had to give way to the love that bound both of them together anew. Christianity sanctified marriage, liberated it from various evils, and once again established it on the foundation of the divine commandment. Last paragraph, and we'll be done. Just as Christianity bound husband and wife together again, so too it gave parents back to their children and children to their parents. The wife became mother once again in the true sense of the word, the one who not only gives birth to her children, but who also nurtures them. And children obtained, obtained rights as well, such as the right not to be destroyed before birth. Of course, sorry, Bob Inc., we brought that back in the 60s, 40 years after you died, and now we have abortion again. And so it shows you that we're not taking a straight line to you know, post-millennial golden age or anything like that. Uh, and not to be killed or abandoned as a castaway after birth. Now, sadly, again, abortion is rampant in our sophisticated nation saturated with the gospel but we've abandoned it right you enter the promised land like the israelites and they fall back to corruption well we have a high point of the gospel in our nation with the pilgrims and uh, puritans and so on and so forth and yet we apostatize and fall back in the corrupt society there were actually no longer any fathers and mothers any spouses and children but now they were all once again bound together in one circle and in one family and that family was not merely a part of the state, but it acquired an independent existence and became the foundation of the entire civil society. And that's right. This family is the foundation of a healthy, a healthy family. Christian family is a sure foundation for an entire civil society. But you got to have enough families that are Christian and strong to have a strong society. All right, next time we'll look at chapter six, Dangers Confronting the Family. And he starts out with the ascetic movement within the Christian church. Thank you and God bless.